This episode of Mossback is presented by the Crosscut Festival. It was a heist. This guy was clever. He thought of doing something in a way that other people hadn't thought. I just think there was partly the timing, partly the fact that it wasn't for political purpose, just made it more broadly appealing to uh, Americans. Mm -hmm. And then you add the mystery on top of it, and you've got all the ingredients you need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for a true crime (laughs) obsession. Hey, everybody, welcome to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS 9 and Crosscut. I'm Sarah Bernard. And I'm Knut Berger. And this is our very first episode, a deeper dive on the first episode of the season of Mossback's Northwest, the story about D.B. Cooper. One of the Northwest's greatest mysteries is about a skyjacker who called himself Dan Cooper. Which, by the way, you really should watch. If you haven't already seen it, we suggest you stop right now, go to the show notes or the show page at crosscut.com and check it out. Okay, so D.B. Cooper, November 1971. He threatened to blow up a plane flying from Portland to Seattle unless he was paid $200,000 in $20 bills. He lowered the stairs of the airplane and jumped off with the money in a parachute into the dark, stormy night. To my mind, his outrageous crime is not even the most odd thing about his story. So I have a confession to make. D.B. Cooper is not just a hero in the Pacific Northwest. He's actually uh, nationally known and is kind of a legend. But before I watched this episode of Mossbacks Northwest, I confess I didn't even know who he was. Apparently, there are lots and lots and lots of popular culture references to this guy, and I missed them all (laughs) somehow. Well, yeah, you know, D.B. Cooper... The interesting thing is that everybody knows D.B. Cooper and nobody knows D.B. Cooper. I mean, that is sort of the central conundrum that keeps people so engaged. So it was essentially a robbery, like an old-fashioned robbery in the sky. And this was a novel thing to request, in addition to the money, parachutes. And he asked for four parachutes, two reserves, two main chutes. And they say that they think he did that because he wanted the FBI to think he jumped with, would jump with a hostage so they wouldn't sabotage the parachute. So he, you know, he thought this thing through uh, in some ways. And, you know, he, he ended up being able to jump off the plane while it was, you know, at 10,000 feet in the midst of a thunderstorm somewhere, it's believed, over southwest Washington, although there's debate about exactly where. And as far as officialdom knows, he was never seen again. That was it. I mean, I I guess as someone who kind of came of age around September 11th, I mean, one thing I I think about a lot when I hear this story, too, just just the premise, just that's the idea that that somebody could... uh, pull that off. It just seems impossible now. That would just never, that wouldn't happen. They don't even let you bring toothpaste, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, we, we live in a different world, you know? The, the, uh, of course, yeah, 9-11 really changed how we fly and all the protocols and, and we have sky marshals now and, and all these things. But in the late 60s and early 70s, there was just this rash of hijackings uh, there were, you know, in the four-year period between 1968 and 1972, there were like 130 U.S. planes were hijacked. So it was, it, it was almost like an epidemic of, of uh, hijackings. 
And some of them were for political reasons. In some cases, they were for the money. Mm -hmm. Wow. So so hundreds within a few year period. Is it almost like something people came to expect? They heard it so much in the news kind of thing? Well, that to me was one of the very interesting things about D.B. Cooper is that, first of all, you don't you don't invent a, a folk hero before the fact. You know, people are going to respond to something and they're going to respond with horror or judgment or whatever. In D.B. Cooper's case, whatever his style, his uh, technique, his uh, uh, his look – in fact, he was, you know, drinking bourbon and soda and smoking cigarettes in a kind of madman's suit in the back of the plane. You know, I think it just hit a mood that when you look at what people had to say about it at the time, it wasn't, oh, my God, this is a terrorist. It was, this guy's cool. This is, this guy is, I want to be him. I want to, uh, I think anybody that can steal $200,000 and nobody gets hurt. Uh, you know, I don't want him to get caught. So there was this kind of immediate fan club for D.B. Cooper, even though he was, you know, breaking all kinds of laws and rules of society. Right. And I, and I guess that, I mean, I can sort of see the appeal in the, in the way that we love true crime stories, but the amount of attention, it turns out, uh, not from me, apparently, because I didn't even know who he was. But um, in my ignorance, I did a quick Google, <laughs> and I was just kind of blown away. The FBI now checking out a new lead in the baffling disappearance of the daredevil thief called D.B. Cooper. Was this mysterious D.B. Cooper? The crime was perfect if he lived, and perfectly crazy if he didn't. I'm the case agent for the D.B. Cooper case uh, out of the FBI's Seattle office. This is the man who pulled off the only successful skyjacking in U.S. history. A scientist has uncovered microscopic evidence in the unsolved case of D.B. Cooper. D.B. Cooper. D.B. Cooper. D.B. Cooper. Well, it's interesting because, you know, it had these elements of the crime, had the elements of the mystery, the disappearance. It also happened at a time when, you know, a lot of anti-establishment activity was going on in terms of, you know, protests against the war in Vietnam. And, uh, you know, some there's a sociologist at the University of Washington who said this is, this is the sort of uh, anti-establishment figure, a guy – um, showing that one person could defeat technology. And so I think there were a whole lot of cultural things that made it particularly ripe. And then you add on to the fact that everybody is an amateur sleuth. Yeah. You know, the FBI put out a reward. They, be, you know, began combing the woods to find the body or, or find out where he landed. And they weren't successful. Mm. And so... The folk, <laughs> people, have filled that gap. Hmm. They were looking for him. They couldn't find him. And so there's this enduring mystery. And so maybe, you know, the other hundred and something skyjackers in those times, maybe they didn't disappear. So you had a resolution to their stories or something. Well, that's true. Your point about being found is really interesting because one of the suspects, a guy named Richard Floyd McCoy, did a copycat hijacking of a, a plane just a few months later with a parachute, demand for, for money. Uh, he got $500,000, got his parachute, jumped out of a 727 with a rear stairway just like D.B. Cooper did. And he made it to the ground and was caught. 
Uh-huh. And uh, ended up going to federal prison. Okay. And uh, there are people who believe that he was D.B. Cooper. And the evidence that I've disclosed to you, in my view, would have a fair chance of convincing a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that it was McCoy who committed the Cooper hijacking. In other words, that D.B. Cooper failed the first time, succeeded the second time, and ended up being caught. And there's kind of a whole saga around that. People can, you know, go on YouTube and see a whole thing. But, you know, nobody remembers him except that he might be a D.B. Cooper. But nobody's talking about Richard Floyd McCoy as this archetypal, perfect skyjacker of our times. Wow. Yeah, because he was found. Yes. Yeah, he was caught apprehended, tried, convicted, sent to federal prison. Now, later he broke out of prison and oh. then was killed in a shootout. Wow. And um, But there were some former FBI agents who wrote a book uh, saying that, that he was, you know, he was a major suspect. They believed he was D.B. Cooper and that the FBI hadn't looked into the fact that he might have been able, this might have been a second try. And I can mm-hmm. tell you from 20 plus years in the FBI that if, in fact, we could have made McCoy as D.B. Cooper, we would have done it. End but story. there were copycat cases that came after D.B. Cooper. People tried the same thing. And uh, there were various responses to that, one of which is this thing called the Cooper vein. Oh. Have you heard about the Cooper vein? No. So when we were filming our episode, we uh, Stephen Haig, the our producer-director, uh, we had to find 727s because we wanted to film on, on a 727, and we wanted to show how the stairs worked. And um, we we actually found two 727s, one at the Bo- uh, the Museum of Flight, and it, it was a perfectly preserved, like, 70s interior. And then we found one up in Everett that Everett Community College uses to train aircraft mechanics on. So the plane is completely stripped out, but... The rear stairway works. Oh. <laughs> and so one of the things we learned was that after uh, the hijacking, they came up with this little piece of metal that, that rests uh, near the back stairway. And uh, when the plane takes off, like a little weather vane, this thing, metal moves and it blocks the stairs so they cannot be opened in flight. Ah, and and so that was one of the responses was, well, we're going to make it so no one can, you know, pull the stair trick again. So when, when they landed the plane, the money was gone. But in 1980, uh, a kid down in, in southwest Washington on a beach called Tina Bar on the Columbia River found a bunch of his money in these ratty, deteriorated bills. And so, you know, the, the amount of money he asked for, I looked this up, uh, $200,000 in $20 bills weighs about 22 pounds. Ah. So he's jumping at night. He's um, got to somehow attach this money to himself mm, and, yeah. uh, and hold on to it while jumping off with a parachute that's going to open very rapidly in a very high wind, high, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, high uh, airspeed conditions. 
So there are a lot of reasons to think that he might not have made it. He wasn't able to see the ground. How did he know exactly where to jump? Mm-hmm. You know, all that kind of stuff. And of course, that just adds to the mystery. It adds to the kind of glamour of, uh, of the whole thing. So, and only part of his money was found. It was, it was, right. I think about uh, five fifty eight hundred dollars worth, something like that. That was found. The bills were rotting. They were still in their original rubber bands. So, um, you have people who think, well, he dropped the money, that it washed down river and then washed up on this little bar where it got kind of buried in the sand. And this this place is a place where a fair amount of debris from the mm-hmm. Columbia River, you know, washes up. Or did he land and bury it there? Uh, you know, they're different things. But I think I think it's pretty clear that he was separated from at least part of the loot. Mm-hmm. For example, they didn't find the bag that the money was in. It was just these bills. Yeah. And they yeah. were, you know, they identified the bills from the serial numbers, but the rest of the serial numbers have never shown up. Hmm. So either they were laundered more thoroughly than one could expect them to be laundered or <laughs> they were never spent. Huh. Anyway, so this is why people obsess over D.B. Cooper, because there's so much unresolved. His body was never found. The other money was never found, never spent. I tend not to get into the like all the different theories about who was D.B. Cooper, because, I mean, there have been deathbed confessions, families coming forward saying my father was D.B. Cooper, my uncle was D.B. Cooper. Um it reminds me, I kind of, you know, of the sh- who wrote Shakespeare. It's like you'll never convince the Francis Bacon people and the Marlowe people and all these different people uh, that they didn't write Shakespeare. And and the same is true, I think, with a lot of the people who've invested literally decades researching, coming up with their own theories, tracking down their, you know, suspects. Hello, everybody. Today is November 24, 2021. That means it was 50 years ago to today. Just this past Thanksgiving, November 2021, is the 50th anniversary of the skyjacking. Okay, tonight the 50th anniversary of one of the most infamous and unsolved mysteries in the Pacific Northwest ever. In my Googling, I learned that, of course, there is a... An HBO documentary about this guy that actually just came out. When he got on a plane in Portland, Oregon last night, he was just and, another uh, passenger. I've only seen the trailer, <laughs> but it seems like the filmmakers got a hold of some of the people who you mentioned had these sort of fingering their relatives or deathbed confessions. There are thousands of people who say, I know who Cooper is. I believe it's my dad. I know. I know my uncle. And, and this is something I just like really want to put a fine point on like not only do we have a deathbed confession but we have more than one deathbed confession I mean that just is amazing to me that the the level of attention on this one guy that people wanted to be him that they on their deathbed would say I am him but more than one yeah I know that that kind of thing is surprising and a lot of the folks have been putting all the time and energy into it you know they're not doing it at this point nobody's doing it for a reward And, of course, the statute of limitations on the piracy charges have expired, Mm. although there's a thing called the Hobbs Act, which he would still be liable under. But if if the age prediction, uh, you know, of the witnesses that D.B. Cooper was in middle age, his mid-40s, he'd be in his mid-90s right now um, if, if he were alive. But I think, you know, some people... You know, they just don't want an unanswered question. 
part of the human imagination is wanting to put two and two together and have it make four. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big part of what's going on. They have conventions where people come, there are annual events where people show up. Mm-hmm. Um, the CooperCon. You know, that was another that's thing right. I found. CooperCon. Tell us about CooperCon. Where are we and what is CooperCon? Uh, CooperCon2021.com. I mean, people are still talking about this today. We're at the Theater here in Vancouver, Washington. We're the CooperCon uh, 2021 speakers today. list includes... Bill Mitchell, passenger on Flight 305, who sat directly across the aisle from D.B. Cooper, uh, a host of a Cooper, D.B. Cooper podcast. It's called the Cooper Vortex podcast. <laughs> That's um, a great name. <laughs> well, it, 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 it's we were talking about people going down a rabbit hole, you know, sort of Alice in Wonderland. I mean, you know, some of the stuff is is very logical and, and fact based and then other gets into wild speculation and that kind of thing. And. It's almost like a black hole, I think, for some people. It's that like they're never going to escape the, mm-hmm. the, you know, compulsion to have an answer and think maybe they know the answer. One of the things I received from a reader. Oh yeah. Is a poem about D.B. Cooper. <laughs> Speaking of. I, yes, and and <laughs> it addresses fan. some of the very things you just talked about, and I wonder if I can read it. Please, yeah. Yeah, so this is a uh, uh, man, uh, James Nystrom. He lives uh, in the Seattle area and sent me this poem, which I thought was really, really quite interesting. It's called uh, D.B. Cooper's Ghost. Your fantasy outlaw on the loose. I parachuted into America's psyche like some smoke jumper of dreams, tapping the public's fascination with my audacity and outright gall. I took your dirty money with me, down and down and probably out. Because no one found evidence of the effects of my perfect crime, I was destined to go into history as a legend after Bonnie and Clyde, after the Wild West was tamed, and after the boring Thanksgiving news blared out one exciting thing to know. People talked about the whole affair over turkey and dressing instead of politics and never dreamed that hijackings would culminate in falling towers, would consummate in falling tears, would complete the end of innocence. After me, there are no airplane heroes, no more rogues in sky galleries, no charming criminals in the air. I am the ghost of D.B. Cooper, your conspiracy theory initiator, You're wondering if truth will out, your gap of knowledge of the past. Do not put out any more searchers. I have disappeared into the other ether, and there is nothing further to be done. We'll be right back. Support for the Mossback Podcast comes from the Crosscut Festival, happening online and in Seattle May 4th through the 7th. Join us in celebrating bold ideas for a changing world at our biggest event of the year, featuring fireside conversations, panels, live podcast recordings, workshops, and special events that explore forward thinking in politics, social justice, the environment, history, innovation, and more. 
Spend your week with the community of the curious at the Crosscut Festival this spring. More information at crosscut.com festival. was curious do you know anything more about the people who have fingered their relatives and neighbors or made deathbed confessions do we know anything more about some of those stories so there is some evidence that you know has surfaced that sort of feeds speculation um some years ago i think it was in the early 2000s they were able to get some DNA information from the clip-on tie that was left behind. My understanding from the Internet is that it was inconclusive. They couldn't necessarily, they didn't get a full DNA profile, and that they think there was DNA from more than one individual on the tie. Mm. So even if they had a full thing, there, there would perhaps be more than one. Another interesting thing is that the tie was tested and they found some residue of titanium and some other chemicals and whatnot that lead some people to believe that the tie was worn in a maybe an aircraft or defense manufacturing uh, facility of some kind. So there are some little pieces of evidence. And of course, as technology moves ahead, as we learn more about DNA, I mean, there certainly is the possibility that you know, more more information will come out. You can see this in history, you know, with archaeological sites where, you know, whereas many years ago we would just say, oh, it's a pile of bones. Mm -hmm. And now you can find out, you know, where the if you're lucky and get enough DNA, you can find out an entire profile of a community, of an individual. So, uh, you know, we keep, you know, people keep uh, fingers crossed that maybe someday they'll get a definitive answer. Um, from my perspective, I'm not, you know, I just don't really care. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, people have been sending me their, their, you know, links or videos and telling me, you know, to check them out. And I've checked them out. And some of them are more compelling than others. Um, but yeah, it's just not, as my grandmother would say, it was not my dish of tea. <laughs> One of the things is is if you if you really get into it and try to and analyze and compare everything, it's it, it's a full time job, mm -hmm. you know. Well, so I was in high school. This was my I was senior year of high school when this happened, and I was trying to remember like what did I think about it. And part of it's that over the years I've thought about it. I've read about it. I've, you know, and so it's hard to tell what I thought um, at the time. Mm -hmm. Although I remember re hearing about it at the time. I remember talking about it with my friends and family a little bit, but we weren't like overawed. And I realized there was so much else going on. I mean, when he jumped, we were in the middle of the Boeing recession. 1971 was when the billboard went up. Um, I was draft age and was concerned about one, where am I going to go to college? And two, am I am I going to end up in Vietnam? Uh, I was going to anti-war protests and and that kind of thing. And so, I think one thing I I learned in thinking about it was just all this stuff that was happening at the same time. And it reminds me of our times. 
where you have, you know, whether it's election stuff or vaccination and pandemic stuff, there's just so much going on that it's hard for something else to break through. And I think for some people, especially because nobody got hurt in this thing, except maybe probably D.B. Cooper himself, I think there's a way that we like it because it didn't hurt. Mm. You know, you know, the passengers on the plane, you know, the the pilots, uh, everybody seemed to just kind of get on with life. Nobody really worried about the money. Um, you know, it, it, it was a form of entertainment that cut through all the stuff that we were angsting about. Mm. And. And that may be part of the, the kind of popularity of it is, um, you know, you're not making a particularly politically incorrect or whatever statement by being fascinated by a, an old mystery that, you know, the FBI hasn't been able to solve. So, so we're left with this conclusion that in a highly divided society, <laughs> D.B. Cooper unites us. <laughs> That's <D>. right. <laughs> Yeah, at the end of the day, that's that's the answer. Just money motivated heister. I guess um, you know, yeah, maybe it can be quite just as simple as it sounds. Two hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, well, I, I, though it's interesting because um, you just reminded me of an aspect of the case that I didn't know about oh. until I was digging around in it, which was that DB Cooper told the stewardess on the plane, who was his go-between with the, the pilots and, and whatnot, told her that he was, that essentially that he was doing it not because he had anything against the airline, but that he had a grudge. Oh, really? So that, that one little piece of motivation that he stated to the stewardess, and so when people are kind of creating a profile of D.B. Cooper trying to figure out who he is, you know, you're looking for somebody who had some knowledge of aircraft and parachuting, although some experts say, well, yeah, a little knowledge. But if he knew if he really knew what he was doing, he wouldn't have done what he did. But also there's this question of who was he trying to get back at, if that's true. There's one of the possible suspects is a guy who had a daughter who was killed in a hijacking that he believed the FBI had botched. And so one theory is that this guy had all the kind of knowledge and skills and access that would have answered the question of the grudge. It would have answered the question of the, uh, the guy who was in aviation, had you know various things. And so there is evidence that sort of has burbled to the surface or has been lost in the, the details that people who really follow this have paid attention to that, that, you know, they can add to the picture. So if you add a little bit of DNA here and a, and a grudge there and a, a titanium residue there, you know, you, you begin to kind of have more kind of half puzzle pieces to play with. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Well, the grudge, I, for me, the grudge really uh, adds as a significant wrinkle because I think, you know, a lot of the immediate press at the time, um, 
and and the sort of conversation around what the sociology professor thought it was like a lot of it was like oh this is a simple thing like everybody can understand money <laughs> you know yeah and nobody was hurt so that's you know easier to get behind but um but if you had a grudge yes right well and you know in the 1970s who didn't have a grudge you know I mean, people, you know, they had grudges against Nixon. They had grudges against the war in Vietnam. They had grudges against the collapsed economy uh, Mm -hmm. in Seattle, the Boeing recession. They had grudges, you know, there were lots of opportunities for grudges. And that's that's kind of why I tie it to this time Mm -hmm. in that sense of uh, the late 1960s and early 70s were tumultuous. Mm -hmm. And... um, and this may be partly a product of that and also partly a relief from that. Mm. Huh. Well, anyway. Well, yeah, I'm just curious about this grudge now. Hmm. Well, okay, well, part there, of the there, mystery. Yeah, I was going to say, there I have opened a, a new rabbit hole for you. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm going to go home and just uh, keep Googling now. Will I, will I ever see you for another podcast? <laughs> That's right. Never again. <laughs> I'm just going to go to CooperCon and, uh, yeah, talk to you next year. Thanks for listening to Mossback. This episode was produced by me, Sarah Bernard, and the executive producer is Mark Baumgarten. Editorial assistance from Mason Bryan. Cover art by Greg Cohen. And many thanks to engineer Resty Bacall for building out an amazing COVID-friendly audio studio. If you'd like to check out more videos from the five seasons of Mossbacks Northwest, you can find them all at crosscut.com or kcts9.org. For more on all things Mossback, go to crosscut.com slash Mossback. You can subscribe to the Mossback podcast wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. And if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, go to crosscut.com slash membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to KCTS9's on-demand programming and a subscription to the Mossback Den newsletter, where Knut shares even more Pacific Northwest history. Mossback is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard, and we'll be back soon with another episode. Were there any scenes or details that you and the team did kind of put together for the video that that you ended up cutting in the in the final shoot we had the stairs were down on this plane in in Everett there was a, a point where we experimented having me jump off the stairs <laughs> kind of toward the camera i mean i was <laughs> jumping from like the bottom stair so it wasn't like a big leap <laughs> or whatnot and we we nix that you know and and instead i just did the thing where i take off my clip-on tie and throw it but yeah no the the me you know flying through the air didn't make it (laughs) oh well yeah (laughs) next time (laughs) 